0: Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samha sam namotasa Namo bhagavato arahato samha sam buddhasa. Udham dammaṁ Chris just did the traditional chant, requesting a talk, And I just did the traditional chant, introducing a talk. These traditions go back at least 2,500 years. I think that people are rounding it up to 2,600 years now. So, time is still passing. And one of the things that the Dhamma, the Buddha, uh, attributed to this Dhamma, this teaching, is the characteristic of uh, timeless. I'm holding a watch. There's this great quote from uh, uh, one of the masters of the church. The Catholic Church. I can't remember. It'll come to me. But he was—he was very interested in science. This is back in the 12th century or something. And uh, they were at the time they were trying to were very interested in in uh, uh, our our little thing hourglass. Yeah, so sand in a glass that goes through a narrow passage. And so they knew they were, they, they, could, they could tell they are measuring something, time. And the quote is like, when, when, someone, asks, when someone asks me what time is, or what, what is time, I feel like I know it. But when I try to answer them, I can't quite say what it is. So we, we live our lives in time, uh, so it seems, but we don't actually know what time is really. It just seems so obvious, right? Time is passing. Like I look, there went some right there. Just time just went by. So we we actually use we speak about time often in terms of physical location. We talk about time in terms of space because we kind of know what space is. So we kind of going forward in time or back way back when Are we talking about forward and backwards. So we're using these ideas of of physical motion or physical location to talk about time because time is, well, what is time? Again, it's very difficult to talk about it other than uh, in terms of metaphor. And and yet, it's always part of our experience, always kind of relating to the past and anticipating the future. And this is true of the time of the Buddha. (laughs) So even even in his time, uh, people were very concerned about time. Um, And the Buddha relates our, 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 our situation dealing with time to something like being kind of muddled or being confused. Uh, so a confused person uh, asks himself, was I, was I in the past, or what was I in the past? Or having been what in the past, what did I later become? Will I be in the future? What will I be in the future? How how will I be in the future? Given what I am now, what will I become in the future? So there's these questions about the past, the questions about the future, Often preoccupy us. They, they take up a lot of space in our minds. We wonder, like, what's going to happen? What will happen next? And so we're, we're, we spend a lot of our time, uh... let me turn it down just a little bit. <clears throat> just a little bit. I'll speak a little louder. We spend a lot of our time thinking about something which isn't actually here. So, the cliches is about time. The past is something which is gone, which is dead and gone. It doesn't exist. It seems like it exists in our minds. We talk about the past as though it's a real thing, as though it were a place you could go, like a, 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 some, some giant record you could go look stuff up in. But the record is really only our memories. And there's a collective aspect to it, too. I mean, we kind of, as a group, we remember things that happened to our our societies or whatever. But really, our, our, our narrative is mostly concerned with our personal history, our personal past, what happened to me back then. And that past, which seems so real, so relevant, so compelling, doesn't exist. It's completely unreal. You can't touch it, you can't show it to anybody. Your only experience of it is mental. It's a mental representation. The past as a a something simply doesn't exist. And that's what's confusing about it, because it seems real, We we tend to think about it and treat it and relate to it as though it were a real thing. And guess what about the future? <laughs> you can see where this is going, right? <laughs> you can all anticipate the future? You know what I'm going to say next? Almost. You nearly know what I'm going to say next. The future isn't real either. The future is the future is something that we represent in our minds as as set sort of maybe something like probabilities, uh, likely outcomes. We anticipate futures. But the future when it actually arrives and becomes the present is always at least a little bit different than what we anticipated. And the farther out it is, the less likely it is to be exactly the way we represented it to ourselves. And guess what is actually real? Right now, the present moment. So what's happening right now in this very narrow slice of time is all that is real. Everything else doesn't exist. Doesn't have any claim to existence, doesn't have any standing to be recognized as real. Cannot be experienced. Everything that you experience only happens in the present moment. So I'm kind of emphasizing this because especially in in the modern world, but even at the time of the Buddha, people tend to live in the past and live in the future and not recognize what's happening. So clearly, it was happening in the present moment. Even when we're thinking about the past, that thinking is happening in the present moment. So we're kind of recollecting the past, bringing it into the present, kind of fumbling with it with our minds. And then as soon as we get distracted, we drop it, and now the past vanishes. We start thinking about something else. And then when we go back and think about the past again, it seems like it's still there, as so though we the a the static thing sort of waiting for us. And its representation maybe lives in our brain cells or something. It's a quasi static thing. But we all know what happens when you get older. Right? Uh, Especially people who've got various forms of dementia, they start losing their memories. So if you can't remember what you happened, what you had for breakfast this morning? Well, is it really real? Is it? Is it relevant? So the this is not necessarily to try to explore the nature of the past. Or the future, but simply to point out that preoccupation with the past and the future is a hallmark of not really paying attention to what's truly happening now what's, what's really real. And so the question that the Buddha is trying to answer for us, the question is what he called dukkha, is gets it, translated as suffering. Dukkha is suffering. Or you can also say Dukkha is unsatisfactoriness. So unsatisfactoriness, the Buddha, he gave a very clear definition. So that's one of the problems with translation is over a long period of time, a word like Dukkha uh, can take on all kinds of different meanings and connotations and can even go so far as to become completely different than the way it started off. There's lots of words in English that meant something when I was a kid that means something else now. Uh, I can't think of any, but, but I, I've kind of seen that like so linguistically, that, that words change their meaning over time. So the word dukkha, the Buddha defines it as birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Not to get what one wants is dukkha. To be associated with what one dislikes is dukkha. To be separated from what one likes is dukkha. Now we can all relate to those things. We almost don't need a word for it. We just know how it feels. We don't like it. Right? So, so uh, one of the one of the etymologies for dukkha is that dukkha is that which is difficult to bear. Dukkha being like a a word in Pali that can be broken down as to mean something like heavy or burdensome. So that which we don't like or that which is difficult to bear. Dukkha. What's the problem with Dukkha? The problem is because we don't like Dukkha, because we're trying to get away from Dukkha, we employ all kinds of strategies. So you might say our main strategy is to try to make ourselves happy, which seems like the opposite of Dukkha. And indeed, What the Buddha promises is that, when you solve the problem of dukkha, the problem of happiness is also solved. Because happiness is merely the absence of unsatisfactoriness, or the absence of dukkha. So once unsatisfactoriness is is lifted, then the mind can settle into being satisfied, being content, being at ease, in a word, happy. Maybe not, maybe not jumping up and down, happy, excited, happy, but more like kind of contented, peaceful, at ease. Easefulness, that's, a, that's like a key word. Undisturbed, unannoyed, unbothered, unmoved. None of those things imply indifference or uh, numbness or non-contactfulness or remoteness. Anything can be happening to someone who's solved the problem of dukkha. Because they've solved the problem of dukkha, they can be experiencing aging, sickness, and even death. And be unmoved by it. Basically still be happy. Still be content. Still be okay with the way things actually are. That sounds pretty amazing. To be content in the face of all the vicissitudes of life. Whatever they might be that freedom from dukkha doesn't happen in the future. It happens in the mind right in the present moment. Now, it's true that we do have to undertake the practices and employ the methods and see for ourselves, but the seeing is something that happens uh, in your immediate experience of this moment. And so that's part of the reason why we do meditation practice, we're trying to keep the mind in the present moment, in what's actually happening right now, and paying attention very carefully to what's actually happening. Because, well, the problem of dukkha is essentially a problem of not knowing what's actually happening, how the mind actually creates the conditions that you experience. Our minds as, are, as it were, designed to look outward, and to look to the future and look to the past. So what's, there's this kind of nexus of the present moment, and in the present moment there is this mind, and there's, this mind could take its own self as its object. So there's this kind of an inwardness to the present moment that's possible. So when, when we're meditating, we're trying to actually practice that. We're trying to like, pay attention to the condition of our mind in the present moment. We use the breath as an anchor so that we can train the mind to be able to stay with something pretty subtle in the present moment. Why would you want to do that? Well, it's a little bit like living in a house with a bad furnace. You're living in a house with a bad furnace, and you just like wake up in the middle of the night, you're freezing cold. And you're like, oh, that's so awful. You get a bunch of blankets, and you pile them on top start falling asleep again. And then you wake up later on and it's just roasting, you know, you're just sweating. And then you start opening windows and trying to get relief from this terrible, oppressed condition. And so you so imagine, like, you're spending your whole life just, like, sort of trying to recover from being overheated or trying to warm up from being freezing cold. And all the while, it's, it, you know, the problem is down in the basement. You, know, you would just pay attention to what causes this arising of, overheating and overcooling, it would eventually lead you to go investigate that place where the hot air is coming out. And then eventually that would lead you down to the basement where the furnace is, and eventually you'd find out, oh, Jesus, there's this knob on it that says random, <clears throat> and there's this other knob over here that says stable. What would happen if I just like, switch that knob? So Buddha the Buddha's pointing out is there is this knob. There's a switch, there's a a thermostat setting in your mind. And you can't find it if you don't look here and now, in the present moment, and have the locus of your attention in what the mind is doing. The mind, when you're trying to meditate, at first especially, it does all kinds of crazy things. It goes to the past, it goes to the future, it thinks about fantasies, it thinks about, worries about things. That plays music for itself. It does all kinds of stuff. You've probably seen this. And that's actually the furnace freezing you and and burning you. It's the crazy furnace in your basement, doing stuff that uh, you don't seem to have any control over. At first, it seems like you have some control over your mind. You can point it at something, starts attending to it, and then you kind of like start to relax. Next thing you know, it's thinking about some crazy thing that you didn't really remember choosing to think about. You didn't go, okay, I'm going to, you know, choose to stop paying attention to the breath and put my attention over here on, you know, that funny thing I saw outside the window on the way in, or that uh, thing the boss said to me this morning, or what happened to me in traffic today, or um, whatever. The mind will go off and think about, (laughs) well, you know, all kinds of things. So the mind is the furnace. It's 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 uh, it conditions our experience of this life. It's it is it is in fact the condition of our life. It is what we experience. We're experiencing the mind. We think we're experiencing the world, right? So you know, I'm, I'm in traffic and I'm experiencing all these other cars who are oppressing me with their presence. And why won't they get out of the way? Why is there so much traffic? Or I'm, I'm experiencing this meal. Right? We think that our our experience is happening in the outside world, and that's a pretty good approximation, I and mean, it's certainly functional. Right? You can sort of say, well, I'm I'm going to the grocery store to buy groceries. Everybody will understand what you mean. If you say, I'm going to experience going to the grocery store in my mind, that seems weird. <laughs> you know, that doesn't seem quite right. <laughs> But the reality is that everything that you're, you have an experience is coming in through your five senses. And so there's this kind of analytical aspect of Buddhism where we, we consider. Uh, how do I know that in a room, sitting with a bunch of people, uh, so my sense data is telling me that, like I'm looking around and I see all you people and I see, okay, a roof and the floor. Well, you know, where did this idea of floor come from? Well, guess what? It came from like really early childhood, because you like your mom put you on the floor, you crawled around on it, and then later on, you started getting words, and you started putting it together. Oh, this is what they mean by floor. They say that word floor. Like, Don't put your muddy feet on the floor. Right? You know what it means. But at first, you had, you had to learn that. Right? So you have this direct physical encounter with the material world. And then we add concepts to that, and now we now we can represent the internal world, we can represent the external world to ourselves in our minds using concepts. Well, the concepts are a little bit remote from the actual experience, so if I say the word floor, that's a little bit different than the actual feeling of this surface here. But <clears throat> for the most part, we just simply represent these things to ourselves in our minds. We don't actually have to touch the floor in order to know what floor means. So when you say you're gonna get in the car and drive to the grocery store and buy some groceries, the mind can put that whole thing together into this nice compact symbolic representation of an actually very complex set of operations that have to take place for those things to happen. Because it's so efficient and it's so easy to represent the world to ourselves this way, we do it pretty much constantly. And we start to take the representation of the world by a concept as the world itself. And it's just a habit. We kind of, we're used to thinking about things and thinking that our thinking is an accurate representation of how things really are. Because for the most part, it's pretty functional. It seems to work a lot. But again, it's that crazy furnace that, that creates all these problems for us. So when we experience pain and suffering, when we experience loss, when we have to endure grief or pain or aging or sickness or face death, those things don't happen in the future either. They happen in the present. They happen in our immediate experience. That's when we really have to know what that unsatisfactoriness is, is when those things are actually happening. And what makes them unsatisfactory is our minds. It's not that they're pleasant or fun, but pleasure and pain are not the same thing as happiness and unhappiness. And this is, a, this is kind of a subtle but important point. For some reason lately I've been thinking a lot about dogs. I grew up with, with my mother liked to raise show collies and miniature dachshunds. And uh, we also had uh, quarter horses, goats, chickens. I mean, we had a lot of stuff where I grew in Arizona. And uh, so I, you know, I just, I love dogs. Uh, I'm actually kind of a cat person, but I just, I think dogs are great. So one thing about dogs <clears throat> is dogs are kind of a model of happiness and, and, and suffering. So, so dogs, when they're happy, there's no real doubt about their emotional state. Right? They're showing you that their, their tails are wagging and they're kind of running around excited in circles. And so when they see their favorite toy or their favorite person or their, you know, they're, they're going to go for a walk, like you can relate to how it feels. Right? That's that's like ex- kind of happiness. That's worldly happiness in the, in the form of a, uh, a dog's experience of it. And so when we talk about happiness, that's usually what we think of. Right? <clears throat> feeling of being really, you know, pleased about what's happening or what's about to happen. Um, mm-hmm. The way dogs are. Uh, so dogs are then we can sort of we can actually kind of, uh, uh, you could say, uh, get a contact high off our dogs. Right? <laughs> the dog is really happy, that's making us happy too. Right? So the dog is, is and the dog is if anything bad happens to the dog, unfortunately, we have to suffer alongside the dog. So, oh, poor, poor doggy, you know, stepped on the floor, and owls. Mm-hmm. So, so we, we, we actually were, we're so empathetic. Uh, and it turns out that most, like pretty much all social mammals are very empathetic. So uh, uh, you know, mice are If a mouse has to witness another mouse being brutalized by a big mouse, a little mouse getting brutalized by a big mouse, that little mouse, the, the witnessing mouse, is actually traumatized by the witnessing. Yes that's how sensitive we are as, as animals we're we're like mice times a thousand so we, we empathize with each other we empathize with animals and uh, we know the feeling of happiness and unhappiness but mostly through this encounter with pleasure and pain so so dogs don't I mean dogs never suffer like you know a long internal monologue about the meaning of life mm-hmm. right it just doesn't it doesn't occur to them to have that kind of that they're not really equipped for it. So when they're happy, it's because they're encountering pleasure, right? So their favorite person, their favorite toy, the food they like—they're they're kind of grooving on the actual pleasure, the mental pleasure of that contact. And, uh, and if they're not getting what they want, then they're, they're maybe they might be bored or restless, so they might sleep. Uh, but you know, the anticipation of what they're going to get, they get pretty excited. So we can, we can relate to that because we had exactly the same experience. When we're, we're about to get something that we really want, you know, we're experiencing a kind of happiness. And when we're consuming it, we're experiencing a kind of happiness. Buddha called this worldly happiness. And humans have a lot more ways of getting worldly happiness than dogs do. But it's the same principle. So, you know, your, your favorite blog gets updated, or your favorite yeah, television show has a new episode coming out, or... Your team wins or the politician you favor gets, to, uh, gets elected and the one that you disfavor gets defeated. Um, so, you know, art, culture, music, all these things are sources of happiness, pleasure, pleasurable contacts for human beings. But the experience of that happiness is just like the dog had playing with its toy or playing with another dog. It's pleasurable contact in the world. Here's the thing the dog never notices. Whatever pleasure starts has to end. Whatever wonderful acquisitions one gets, one has to lose. So the, so the dog is, is, you could say, stuck. There's no way out. The dog has, to, in fact, literally, um, this is for all you dog owners out there, you probably know this. <clears throat> the dog has to have pleasurable contacts every day in order to stay mentally healthy if you deprive any mammal of pleasure for an extended period of time that that will affect it uh, physiologically there'll be uh, genetic expression epigenetic expression of particular factors that will cause some parts of the brain to shrivel away and all kinds of unpleasant things will happen to the animal physiologically if you deprive it of pleasure it's got to have feeding it's got to have Social contact, it has to have a lot of things in order to be healthy. Now, ordinary life provides everybody and most animals with all the pleasurable contacts that they need, but obviously it's, it's possible that one could find oneself in circumstances where those things are absent. And so what the Buddha's pointing out is that when we have to face illness, sickness, death, separation from what we love, there's going to be this kind of opposite of pleasure, a thing called dukkha unhappiness. So the happiness that he's pointing to is not a happiness that counts on physical encounters with pleasant objects. And this is, the, this, is the, uh, this is the crux of the matter. Of course, dogs can't do this, so we have to leave dogs behind. We all know about physical, about worldly pleasure. And, we, and there is a kind of happiness that worldly pleasure brings about worldly happiness. And there's a worldly unhappiness that goes along with it when those, those pleasures stop or we lose the things that we love or we, our dog dies. Right? We, have to, we have to encounter grief. What the Buddha's pointing to is this alternative. The alternative is to understand how it is that the mind operates so intimately that you're able to like basically follow it down to the basement and turn the knob. The pleasure of the world, you know, all of the pleasant sense contacts—social, physiological, pleasant sights, pleasant smells, pleasant tastes—but huh? pleasant conversations and pleasant movie-watching experiences. And, Pleasant encounters with family, all these things are helping us to stay happy and healthy as human beings in an ordinary sort of way. And our existential truth is that they're all subject to loss. So what the Buddha is saying is, okay, what you can do is you can get in there into that system and kind of hack the source code. you 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 can tweak things. But in order to do that, you have to understand how it works very, very thoroughly. You have to see how the mind goes from being happy to being unhappy over and over again. You have to see what causes, what are the causes of unhappiness. And at first it's very kind of vague and not clear and it seems like it's the outside world doing it. But eventually you do get to see that for the most part, what's making you unhappy, what's causing you mental stress are things like the past and the future, things which don't actually exist, things which aren't actually happening right now. If you're stuck in traffic, you're in a warm, protected shell uh, surrounded by peaceful people. If you're grieving, if you're raging, if you're suffering over it, it's because you're making yourself do that. The situation is actually quite peaceful to be sitting in a nice, warm car. It's not that bad. But the mind can make it hell. Right? The mind can make anything into hell. So the, what the Buddha's pointing to is that this hellish aspect of the mind is something that's happening uh, because of actual causes and conditions that we can intervene into. So here's the formula for for the Four Noble Truths. You've heard it many times. see how, how relevant it is. The first Noble Truth is the truth of this suffering, this unsatisfactoriness, this difficulty that we all have to face and bear in our ordinary lives. The mental distress that we feel, that which is difficult to bear, unsatisfactoriness. The second Noble Truth is that This suffering has a cause, and that cause is clinging, grasping, holding onto, latching onto, attaching to, identifying with. There's a lot of different ways to to name it. But it's the mind's relationship to objects that it sees in the outside world. Uh, Remember that the world is something that we represent to ourselves in our minds. So what the mind is actually clinging to are mental representations. Like your your mind can't actually reach out and pick up this ball. You can pick it up with your hand. The mind the mind can sort of think that it's picking it up that it's taking possession of it, but it's simply a mental representation of what's happening. Here's a mental here's a, here's a little mental exercise which illustrates it. If you walk out and you Go to put your shoes on after after this is over. Your mind will go, oh, there's there's my shoes. Okay. There's all these shoes out there, but the mind picks up just one pair and goes, those are mine. Right. And so it's taken possession of this physical object, but the physical object doesn't know that it's yours. It's just it's just a physical object. It's completely uh, doesn't have any any sort of bias on the situation. So, so you put your shoes on, you walk, you start walking down the street, and then you look down, and you notice. Know, well, kind of weird, and you look down and you oh, they're not my shoes. Right? Someone else is wearing my shoes. I'm wearing somebody else's shoes. So now the mind is like, dispossess those shoes, now they're alien shoes. And you gotta like, get rid of them, right? So, but it's all mental representation. The, the idea of mind, the idea of shoes, these are just things that the mind is presenting to itself. And so that whole kerfuffle, or say you go out there and you look for your shoes and they're gone. Like, Where are my shoes, who took my shoes? Some guy who's wondering why these shoes feel weird. This so that this, this the kind of suffering that could come from a situation like that, or any similar situation that involves things that belong to me, my family, my reputation, my car, whatever it is. That's the mind grasping at things. It's it's taking possession of things that aren't really its. Right? The shoes aren't really your shoes, actually. not they don't actually belong to the mind. It's just a convention that we all follow, because we're social animals and we have this idea of possession. But when it gets right down to it, uh, if they were your shoes, then you could decide, you know, what happens with them? If someone takes your shoes, are they really yours? Actually your, the shoes just really belong to nature, and the convention of, of mine is something that we're doing with our minds. So. This, this kind of grasping onto things is the cause of the vast majority of our suffering. When we lose anything that's good that we've grasped onto, we suffer. And when we have to put up with something that we don't want, it's like, oh no, like, yeah. Um, they're saying bad things with me, about me on Twitter. People are dissing my reputation on Twitter. Right? Uh, you have to put up with that, because you're on Twitter, so you you've you attach to an idea of a, a reputation in a, in a certain field, whether it's a professional field or a trivial field. Um, when things go wrong and you, whatever is being attacked, if you've identified with it, then you have to suffer. And our bodies are, are like that, too. Just like the pair of shoes, we think our bodies are our body. Sure seems that way. Every time you wake up, there it is, every time you go to sleep still there. So it's, it's our constant companion, but you really carefully examine the body, you, can, you can't help but see. It's just like a pair of shoes, right? It comes about due to causes and conditions. It's not permanent. You don't really know where it came from. You can't really make it not age or not get sick or not die, it's not really under your control. So is it really you, is it really yours? Sound like rhetorical questions, but these questions are all pointing to this, this knob in the basement on the furnace, right? The thing which is causing the suffering is clinging. That's the second noble truth. And the third noble truth is when the practitioner has seen how this works, the first thing they do is they try switching the knob over to the other setting. And that's called the cessation of suffering. The cessation of suffering happens when you stop clinging, or the mind stops clinging. And it can be like, it stops clinging to just a little bit of stuff, or just a little bit of time. If you have a little bit of clinging that you let go of, then you have a little bit of relief from suffering. If you let go of a medium amount of stuff, then you have a medium amount of relief from suffering. The more you can let go of, the more relief you have. The training is training the mind And it's not just sitting in meditation, by the way. There's a lot to it. But the training is a a thoroughgoing, uh, all-possible-vector way of training the mind into this mechanism of clinging and suffering and leading the mind step-by-step to see for itself the magic knob of happiness down in the basement. That... Way is called the Eightfold Noble Path, and that's the fourth Noble Truth: Right View, Right Intention, Right Speech, Right Action, Right Livelihood, Right Effort, Right Mindfulness, and Right Concentration. And so you can sort of see that it's not it's not just sitting in meditation. That's an important part, but But really taking the Buddha's teaching seriously means taking all those parts seriously and trying to employ them as much as you possibly can in all possible settings. So, uh, a very important reminder of how to stay on the path is the first noble truth. Ask yourself at any given moment, am I completely unshakably Is there no suffering in my experience? If you can answer yes to that question, okay, then you're done. (laughs) Success. But if there is suffering, then you're still in contact with the first noble truth. And that's an opportunity to explore the second noble truth. And that will lead you to the third and the fourth. They're all interconnected. So whenever there's suffering, you can ask yourself, how does the Eightfold Noble Path apply here and now, in this moment, given this suffering that I have, given this unsatisfactoriness that I'm putting up with? Whether it's knee pain or psychic pain, if it's pain the mind doesn't want it, wants it to stop, wants it to go away, hates it, that's suffering. Being stuck in traffic, if you're suffering, stuck in traffic, if you're suffering at work, if you're suffering at the dinner table, Sucking, suffering, hanging around with people that you're, you wish you didn't have to hang around with. It's the mind doing it to you. It's really not that bad. We've got a pretty good deal going on here. You know, We're living in a peaceful time in a peaceful country. And uh, we're living in a warm, protected environment. We have enough to eat. We have clothing, we have shelter, we have access to medicine. That's pretty good. You know? That would totally make your dog happy. You know? <laughs> funny, right? Throw in a chew toy and that's about it. (laughs) So we've got like all the requisites for happiness, and yet we still manage to make ourselves suffer. That suffering is all mentally induced. And the Buddha is like pleading with us to please look in there and find out how it is that the mind does that. Here's how. You see for yourself. Then of course the first thing you'll do is drop it and experience the relief that comes from the fulfillment of the path. It's a gradual progress. It doesn't happen all at once. So keep watching the mind, keep watching the mind, and sooner or later you'll see, oh, part of the reason I'm suffering is because I have such a strong opinion about how things should be different. And I'm, gra- I'm kind of holding onto my view that traffic shouldn't be stuck like this, or that, that guy shouldn't have taken my parking space, or. People shouldn't treat me that way or whatever. I really have this strong kind of thing that's going on in my mind over and over again. What would happen if I just said, oh man, no, I don't care. It's like, it's okay. It's okay. I just dropped my, my position. Well, you already know what's going to happen. It's going to be easier. The mind will relax. That's the cessation of suffering. That's an experience of it. A little bit of letting go, a little bit of relief. All the neurotic pain that all the humanity is suffering is coming from holding on to things and not understanding how that works. So this not understanding how it works, the Buddha called avija, or not knowing, or ignorance, is sometimes how it's translated. It's not like a willful ignorance. It's a lack of information. the, uh, you know, being inadequately informed and unfortunately no one can tell you how it is exactly that your mind does this, we can represent it with words we can try to, we can try to uh, convey it with uh, similes and stories and ideas and the teachings of the Buddha, it's full of that stuff but his stories are always concluded with like you have to practice you have to see it for yourself And you can't just see it once. You have to see it over and over and over again. You have to see how the mind grasps on the thing, hurts itself accordingly, and that when it stops grasping, that it feels good, that it feels better, feels lighter. The mind gets happier and happier. The more you practice, the happier you get. You could go years without meditating and make tremendous progress on this path by just following the Eightfold Noble Path, the way it's laid out in the suttas. Mostly it's about giving up the habits of selfish grasping after one's own advantage in the world. And uh, constantly reflecting on what would be the right course of action. Uh, What would be the wholesome thing to do or say in any circumstance. The more you do that, the less you burden the mind with the agendas of the self. And as you've seen, it's the self that suffers. And it's the self that takes possession of things. And it's the self that has to lose possession of those things. And it's all imaginary. And so by purposefully practicing right speech, purposefully practicing right action, right livelihood, purposefully cultivating right view and right intention, to the, to the best of your understanding and ability, you are necessarily putting forth right effort you are necessarily putting forth right mindfulness and right concentration. It might not be quite yet to the point where you're going to experience total release from all suffering, but you will, you will, you inevitably have to see how the mind, as it lets go, it gets freer. As it gets freer, it experiences more happiness. The deeper you see that, the more, the more experientially you experience it, the more de- the more frequently you have encounters with that truth, the more intuitive it becomes, the easier it is for the mind to actually come to places where it's able to let go of everything, even for a moment. Let go of being somebody. Let go of having any kind of opinion. Let go of wanting anything. Completely let go. And in those brief moments, there's no suffering at all. There's just this. Just this. It's good enough. The mind's content. And just this is just this moment. There's no past, there's no future. The thing that's actually happening right now is all there really ever was. So the mind experiencing that contentedly. That's freedom. So I'll leave that for your reflection. So someone needs to say, Hanumayam Dhamma Jataya Sadhu Karam Pase Sadhu 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 Okay, I was kind of on a roll there. Um Usually I'll leave a little bit of time for questions at the end. Do we have a little time for questions at the end? or you got a wrap of it? Um, maybe just like two minutes. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it's
1: fine. Okay. We, okay. we can take five minutes. A couple, five minutes? Yeah. Okay. We'll do a little bit, right? If, there, if there's
0: any questions. Yeah. Any questions for everybody? Yeah, the birth is, um, birth operates at two levels in this teaching. Um, There's the physical birth of being born into the physical world. And uh, it's said that because that doesn't generate satisfaction in the mind of the being that's being born, it simply generates birth and it leads to a lot of trouble that it's, it is itself inherently unsatisfactory. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's like excruciatingly painful, right? Suffering isn't necessarily the same thing as pain, but it's, it's, it's disturbance, it's, it's unsettledness, and it's unsatisfactory. There's also the met kind of a more like a, a metaphorical birth. So uh, if you've been studying for eight years to become an architect and finally one day you get your certificate, And you're born, now you're an architect. So it's a new identity for you to have. So you move into kind of a new world. Um, And so every identity that we have was something that we didn't have at one point. We were born into it. So every status, being a parent, uh, being a partner, being uh, an employee, being uh, a criminal, being like any title that you can hold, you're born into that status. And eventually you pass away from that status. So that's another meaning of birth. Okay. Yeah? And it's not satisfactory. Okay. It might be fun, but it's not it's not going to lead to like any kind of stable, long-lasting habits. It's uncertain. There's another question. Yes? Thank you for the topic. Um, how does one practice uh, beauty and creativity in a way that doesn't create clinging? Hmm. how, How does one practice beauty and creativity in a way that does not generate clinging? Well, I would say the way you do it is you train yourself to watch your mind, whatever you're doing, eating lunch, going for a walk, driving the car, grocery shopping, waking up in the morning, falling asleep at night, talking to people, whatever you're doing, you train yourself to watch your mind, and notice when suffering is arising. See where clinging is happening, and try to let it go, right? That That training, that constant sort of mindfulness will be brought into your art, right? So then you'll, you'll see, okay, I'm trying to create a particular feeling or a particular beauty in this, in this thing that I'm creating, and I really, really, I, I really want it to be a certain way. And I can see that there's a kind of clinging in that, in that desire and see if you can drop it, right? So so there's nothing that's sort of the the ordinaries of everyday life, including computer programming or sculpture or composition of music or talking to your mom. There's nothing, none of that requires that you suffer and none of that requires that you be asleep to what's going on. And so you train yourself to not be asleep and you train yourself to find where where the mind is clinging by following suffering to its root. Right? Every time you follow suffering to the cause, you'll see there's something in there where the mind's going, I want it to be a certain way. It's holding on to an idea. And then you see if you can let it go. Sometimes it'll work, and sometimes it won't. But the more successes that you get with trying to drop stuff and see what happens, the more deeply convinced you'll be that there's no point clinging to anything. And at a certain point, then it becomes like your second nature. As Soon as clinging comes up, you go, oh, that nah. and you just drop it and then you can do anything no matter how beautiful or creative it might be now your motivation might change you might you might see that part of your desire to create beauty is tied up with an identity of being someone who creates beauty and that identity itself is bound up with something unsatisfactory because you can never really fulfill the ideal or whatever like you might how, your analysis might show you something different it's still possible to drop the identity of of like me, the the, budding artist, or me, the the, accomplished engineer, or me, the this, the me, the that. Drop the title and still do the thing that you're good at doing. And whatever comes out will still be okay. But there'll just be less suffering around the whole process because of that training. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I guess we should wrap it up, yeah? So we'll do just a little bit more chanting.